When I was nine or ten, I would read Roman history. Well, they were mostly picture books, but I'd look at the pictures and in them would be references to the Silk Road. For an embarrassing long period of time, I thought this meant there were roads made of silk coming all the way from China to Rome. It wasn't until years later I finally worked out there was no road made of silk, not even really a road. It was merely a route taken by many merchants as they traded goods from east to west and then back from west to east. So in the broadest terms, what is the Silk Road? The Silk Road was an ancient network of trade routes that connected east and west. The Silk Road connected routes from East Asia, Southeast Asia, East Africa, West Asia and Southern Europe. Trade along the road played a significant role in the development of civilizations of China, Korea, Japan, India, Persia, Europe, the Horn of Africa and Arabia. Many items travelled along the road, so did philosophy, science, technology and, perhaps most infamously, the plague. The invention of the Silk Road is mostly a cultural invention. It is the idea that goods can travel freely from one part of the Eurasian continent to the other. There were numerous trading posts and cities built for merchants. Some of these, such as Constantinople, Aleppo, Mosul, Kathmandu, Dakar, for the overland Silk Road, and then Colombo, Mumbai and Venice for the maritime Silk Road, remain hugely important cities and were built up over the centuries as trading posts. The trade down the Silk Road has been one that has led to some of the biggest prosperity seen in the world and led to some of the most important events and changes in human history, societies, civilizations, as countries try to gain dominance or entry over the Silk Road. Archaeologist Warwick Ball claims that the whole idea of the Silk Road is a myth and there was no coherent overland trade system in Eurasia until the Mongol period. While Marco Polo nor Edward Gibbon ever labelled anything as a road or route. So it seems that the Silk Road is a more modern invention, an explanation of the large levels of trade from the early Han Dynasty in 207 BC to the early modern period. It may simply have never struck the people at the time that it was worth giving a name to this invention, as it felt like it had always been there. But the Silk Road slowly expanded into new markets, new products and met new peoples. The term the Silk Road comes from the lucrative Asian silk, which was highly desired right across the world and led to a transcontinental network of trade routes. The name was coined from a German, Ferdinand von Reichentoff, who made several expeditions to China from 1868 to 1871. The Silk Road was never formalised and managed until the Mongols and their conquests of Central Asia, but it was well understood that goods and trade would come from east to west. This led to large geopolitical conflicts 
to try and dominate this lucrative trade, and it pushed for many developments in foreign policy and other areas. The Silk Road trade was the first of the main three periods of globalisation. The first was the Silk Road Exchange. The second was the Columbian Exchange, following Christopher Columbus's expeditions and subsequent trade of goods. The third is the mass globalisation of mass production in the 19th century to the present day. Indeed, the idea of a renewed Silk Road may be leading to a fourth period of global trade, as, after centuries of European colonisation and west-to-east trade, China, India and Asia as a whole, where over half the population live, is becoming more prosperous. This is leading back to the east-west trade becoming ever more vital, and new struggles over the Levant and the Mediterranean. In the West, we think of the East as being poorer and backwards compared to the West, but for most of history, this has been untrue. Indeed, I would say that what we are living through is the anomaly in history. Napoleon allegedly said about China during his reign, quote, Let her sleep, for when she wakes, she will shake the world, close quotes. We are seeing China slowly wake. Most of early civilization was located in Central Asia. The Fertile Crescent was a strip of highly productive land with plenty of water from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean. Many empires came and went during prehistory and early history, but the Persians were the first great empire. The Persians were an open culture who often adopted new ideas and customs when they proved themselves superior. The Persians had a road system that crossed the empire and they repaired and maintained the network. The road network enabled 1,600 miles to be covered in only a week. Trade flourished as a result of this network and the coffers of Persia grew, enabling expansion and the building of great cities like Babylon. With so much wealth, when Alexander of Macedon took to the throne he looked towards Persia to expand. Europe offered nothing for Alexander. Alexander conquered all the way to India. What Alexander left behind was a great appreciation of Hellenic culture, and Greek was in daily use in India more than a century after Alexander's death. This began a great cultural exchange between the two ends of the world. Meanwhile in China, the Han Dynasty pushed its expansion further and further west. But for the Chinese expansion to be effective, they needed to defend against the people of the steppe, their great rivals. The people of the Mongolian steppe were not easy to deal with. People at the time noted that these tribes were barbaric, and the people ate raw meat and drank blood. The solution was to mollify them. The Chinese gave them tribute rather than risk getting attacked. A formal system was developed where the Chinese would give luxuries to the people of the steppe, such as rice, wine and textiles, in return for peace. The amounts the Chinese gave were large. In 1000 BC, 30,000 rolls of silk 
and similar amounts in raw materials were given to the steppe nomads. However, for a great nation like China, meekly paying tribute was going to damage prestige, and it was expensive, and so something had to be done to mitigate this. China expanded into the fertile regions in the west, and began to drive back the nomads in a decades-long campaign that lasted until 119 BC. With this victory and the push west, the Chinese saw before them the Pamir Mountains. Beyond the mountains were a new world. The Chinese, with inquisitiveness we don't always associate with their civilization, decided to look what was beyond these mountains. In a very efficient manner, the Chinese went about investigating what was beyond the mountains. What they found was, of course, the rest of the world. The Chinese explorers recorded what they thought of the rest of the world. They thought the kingdoms of Central Asia to be weak and poor in arms, but clever in commerce. Trade slowly grew between China and Central Asia. It wasn't easy. Traversing the Gobi Desert was hard. As you pass from one oasis to another, and brave the swings in temperature that the desert offers. So it was only the rare and high-value goods traded like silk that was worth taking this far. Silk was vital to China, as by this point China already had money, but as troops were sent to the edge of the state such as the steppes, coins became worthless. It meant that troops were therefore paid in silk, Silk was vital. It was both an international currency and a luxury product. Meanwhile in Europe, a small town midway up the Italian boot was starting to become a regional power. It slowly spread itself out town by town, taking over much of the Mediterranean. I think in Britain we're taught it was one of the most important things for Rome to conquer Britannia and, by extension, how much they valued conquering Gaul, and how much they missed out on by not conquering Germania. But Rome's economic power was in its ability to supply consumers and taxpayers all over its empire with items from the east. First was its conquering of Egypt, which was Rome's breadbasket, and enabled the price of grain to tumble. This resulted in disposable incomes soaring in Rome, so much so that Augustus was able to raise the price of a Senate seat by 40%. He later said that, quote, he found Rome a city built in brick, but left it in marble, close quotes. Asia had a reputation in Rome for fabulous wealth and fine living and so Augustus sent out feelers and expeditions to the west. We have much archaeological evidence in an explosion around this time in trade between India and Rome. Items from Vietnam and the island of Java have been found in Rome. For conservatives in Rome, of which there were many, it was the appearance of Chinese silk that was worst of all. It allowed for silk garments and the popularity of this thin flowing material onto the women of Rome who were now showing all their curves 
and barely hiding their decency. For them, it was horrifying. Such was the craze for Chinese silk that importing it was taking 10% of Rome's annual budget. The trade was conducted not just in coin, but also in glass, silver, gold, coral, topaz and frankincense from Arabia. The places where these exchanges took place grew rapidly too. Palmyra, which Isis so brutally destroyed a few years back, was known as the Venice of the Sands, as it was one of the leading trading centres, while Petra also became one of the wonders of the ancient world thanks to its location. Such was the law of the Silk Road trade that Rome moved its capital to Asia Minor and built a new city on the crossroads between the two continents. The new Rome, or Constantinople, was there to guard the Black Sea and to show the importance of the Mediterranean as the final stopping point for trade between the two ends of the Silk Roads. The Silk Road, in its first incarnation, was a remarkable creation, shortening the world and allowing trade in much the same way as we see it now. Competition, a spur for creativity and a vibrancy that we still see today. East began to look west, and west began to look east. The remarkable thing about the Silk Road is perhaps two things. First, is the thing that all great inventions possess, an ability to reinvent itself. Secondly, the amount of merchandise that travelled down the road. Perhaps even more important than the items that travelled down the road were the ideas that went down it. Perhaps the most important of these is one we still live with today, Christianity. The first set of ideas that travelled down the road was Alexander's Hellenization of the East. Following this, Buddhism travelled somewhat in the opposite direction and further east. By the 460s, Buddhism had been embedded enough into China to compete with Confucianism. In the centuries after the birth of Jesus of Nazareth, there was a long series of small faith wars across the Mediterranean and Asia. Many of these religions are unknown to us now, while others, like Zoroastrianism, is a tiny sect in modern-day Iran and India. And the only reason I know about it is because Freddie Mercury's family was Zoroastrian. In the 3rd century or so, the Persian Empire began to radicalise. Why? Well, because of the spread of the teaching of Jesus of Nazareth. We think of Christianity as a Western religion, with its senior figures located in Rome, Canterbury, Constantinople. But its earliest spread was down the Silk Road, in an eastern direction. This new religion first spread amongst Jewish communities in Mesopotamia, and soon reached the Caucasus and the Persian Gulf, and even as far as Afghanistan. This spread caused as much consternation and reaction in Persia as infamously happened in Rome. Emperor Constantine's conversion to Christianity and the empire's subsequent adoption of the religion as the state's religion led to several things. First was the fact that Christianity in Persia 
was now not only viewed as heretical, but as the religion of the Roman Empire. In other words, it was now the religion of the enemy. Furthermore, the patronage of the emperor led to a shift to the focal point of Christianity to the west. The Council of Nicaea in 325 AD was meant to codify the religion, but no bishops from outside the boundaries of the Roman Empire were invited. Nevertheless, Christianity did not die out in the East. The trade routes that lay along the Silk Roads proved too easy an opportunity to proselytize. The thing, however, that killed Christianity in the East was the coming of a new religion. Just before Islam spread down the Silk Road, there was devastation, the bubonic plague. In 541 AD, from China to Mesopotamia to the Med, the plague was wreaking havoc on all that it touched. Whole cities were wiped out, and this widespread death brought economic depression. Fields were not being farmed, and a generation of consumers lay dead. The plague of Justinian, as it was called, after the emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire, resulted in a new aggression amongst many of the states down the Silk Road. Religion got infused with this new aggression, as Persia and Rome fought over control of the Levant. The Arabic Peninsula had almost been untouched by this fighting, and for good reason too, it was almost a backwater. The story, of course, is that in about 610, Muhammad started to receive a series of revelations from God. These revelations were written down into text, which we now call the Quran. Muhammad was allegedly told that severe punishment was there for those who refused to obey Allah. Muhammad was not the only one to start preaching on the Arabic peninsula of a single God. There were many others, while at the same time churches and shrines began to appear around Mecca. Current academic consensus believes that Muhammad was preaching to a populace that was experiencing deep economic recession from the Persian-Roman wars, which itself had origins in the plague of Justinian. Muhammad's teachings were not popular with the elite of Mecca, though undoubtedly it was popular with the ordinary people. Muhammad was forced to flee from Mecca to Medina. This fleeing marks the year zero in the Islamic calendar and marks the birth of Islam. Islam of course spread. It gained followers quickly and started to expand its base of support. At the same time, as a consequence of the war with Rome, Persia was weak and Muhammad, as any good military leader would do, took advantage. Neither Rome nor Persia could do much to stop this new religion expanding, and it wasn't long before Islam conquered Jerusalem and held the middle of the Silk Road. This meant Europe was now shut off from the rest of the world. Bustling Mediterranean cities began to contract as trade with the rest of the Silk Road was shut off. Islam in just a few decades had taken over places like Persia, Egypt, and the Levant, that had already well-ordered and well-run economies. Islam had gone from a tribe to a superpower in 100 years. All this power was concentrated in the building of a new Islamic city 
right at the heart of the Silk Road. This city became the most populous and the richest city in the world. The Muslims called it the City of Peace. We call it Baghdad. The wealth of this city funded an intellectual revolution and a commercial powerhouse, with Chinese porcelain flooding into the city. Meanwhile, imitations of Chinese-made goods were made in Mesopotamia and the Persian Gulf for those who couldn't afford the Chinese-made versions. Compared to now, where people buy cheap Chinese imitations of quality European products. During this flourishing of wealth, it started the most astonishing period of scholarship, where people of different religions went to court and academic centres to work on subjects in mathematics, philosophy, physics and geography, while much of Greek, Persian and Syriac texts were translated into Arabic. Conversely, cut off from the Silk Road, Christian Europe was stagnant. Perhaps the lack of economic activity led to a death of curiosity and a lack of interest in anything other than faith. Faith which was comforting and easy, as St. Augustine wrote, quote, Men want to know for the sake of knowing, even though the knowledge is of no use to them. Close quotes. Indeed, one of the few ways Europe could get any kind of foothold in the Silk Road was finding something that the Islamic Caliphate wanted they couldn't get easily on the free market. This led to the rise of a new enterprising peoples who were willing to do whatever they could to make their economic activity flourish. What am I talking about? Slavery. Slavery started to flourish across Europe. The Norse peoples, or the Vikings, were some of the forerunners in this area. They would send their longboats into Britain, France, or down the rivers of Russia to kidnap people and then to sell them. The slaves would often end up in the hands of the Muslims, and the money gained would be used to buy goods from the Silk Road. We have, for instance, found Chinese silks in Viking-era tombs in Finland, Sweden, Denmark and Norway. This trade was so big, and the kidnap of particularly Slavic peoples down the Russian rivers is where we get the word slave, from Slav to slave. The remnants of the slave trade are still with us in our language. Chow a Venetian word to mean hello or goodbye, had its original meaning to mean I am your slave. The Venetians built their empire on the slave trade. The slave trade, for all of its obvious faults, did actually bring much prosperity back to Europe. Gold and silver from the trade began to help stabilise and grow the European economy. This led to money rather than men being used as currency. One result in the growth of the European economy was the First Crusade. A cry of help from the Byzantine Empire resulted in Pope Urban declaring a crusade, and many men from the East coming to help reclaim the Holy Land. What this meant was a prizing open of the Silk Road, meaning that now the Italian merchant republics 
could trade in something other than slaves and begin to make a hefty profit. A great game developed between Pisa, Venice and Genoa. This resulted in naval battles and an interdiction from the Pope. However, soon Venice emerged victorious. Being on the other side of the Italian boot meant it had shorter distances to travel to the Levant. Venice's influence grew from Constantinople, the Byzantine Empire, Palestine, the Levant, and slowly to Egypt too. As Venice's power grew, the relations between Christians and Muslims soured, especially after the capture of Jerusalem in 1099. However, money always seems to win out, and it was a good time for both Christians, who received goods from the East, and Muslims, who made fat profits from selling to Christians. The trade was so competitive that Venetians, Genoese and Pisans often had running battles through the streets and markets of Constantinople. Eventually, the Christians lost Jerusalem to the Muslim general Saladin, and many attempts were undertaken to try and reclaim it, as much for economic reasons than religious or geopolitical. Hence why many of the later Crusades were led and funded by Venice, who were desperate not to let their cash cow die. Europeans then heard whispers, rumours, stories of a great army coming from Asia who was to help them in their quest to destroy the Muslim hold on the Silk Road trade. The story said this army was crushing all in their path and it was obvious to all Christians who this leader was. The legendary, mythical Prester John. The stories were that Prester John ruled over a vast Christian army of Amazons, Brahmins, the lost tribes of Israel, and a mix of mythical creatures. Jack de Vitry, Bishop of Acre, was telling anybody who listened that it was Prester John conquering Muslim lands wherever he visited. Of course, we know now it was not Prester John. It was Genghis Khan. The Mongols started out on the steppe, on the northern fringes of China, as far from Europe down the Silk Road as it was possible to get. While the Mongols may have seemed to outsiders as barbarians with no discipline and chaotic and unreliable, it was precisely the opposite which was why they were so successful. Temujin, also known as the Universal Ruler or Fierce Ruler, which translates as Genghis Khan, started by binding the Mongols in a series of deals and by picking off his enemies at the right time. He was utterly meritocratic and rewarded his followers by booty from his campaigns. Beginning in 1211, the Mongols got into China where the plunder was spectacular and this all set up a showdown with the Muslim world which had split from one large dynasty into several smaller successor states. The Mongol tactic was to utterly sack one city so the next ones would submit more easily. The sackings were brutal. They would kill every living thing in a city and then pile up the bodies in enormous pyramids and then go back in three days later to see if there were any stragglers 
and then kill them. The Mongols were barbaric and brutal in their approach. In one instance, they demanded of a conquered city a year's taxes up front, which hardly engendered goodwill, but then they'd spend the money on infrastructure. Such was the Mongol slaughter that it allowed many forests to regrow in formerly habited areas, so that by today's standards, a year's worth of CO2 emissions, about 700 million tonnes, was sucked up by the regrown trees from the Mongol conquests. The fact that Western Europe was still poor and relatively worthless led the Mongols to basically ignore it in favour of more lucrative targets. Had Erdogan, Genghis Khan's successor, not died as Mongol troops approached Eastern Europe and the gates of Vienna, then maybe things would have gone differently. But there was no real desire to conquer Europe. In 1258, the Mongols sacked Baghdad and plundered much of the city's wealth. This marked the end of the Islamic Golden Age. So bad was the plunder over Mesopotamia that some historians believe it permanently damaged the irrigation of the region so badly that it still hasn't recovered today. The Mongols were eventually stopped by the Mamluks in Palestine in 1260, and so the Mongols stayed happy in their huge empire. Yet, control over the Silk Road, this most crucial trading network, changed dramatically once again. All of this geopolitics meant that the Italian city-states needed new routes. Egypt and the Holy Land were too volatile, and so they moved back to the Black Sea as their new trading zone. By 1348, and the Black Death had reached much of Europe. It was catastrophic. 100,000 died in Florence. Venice was almost depopulated, and Europe as a whole lost a third of its population, decreasing from 75 million people to 50 million people. Oddly, the utter destruction of the Black Death may have been a reason Europe started to rise quickly over the next centuries. Wages increased as there were far fewer people, and this started to empower the ordinary person. It was one of the primary causes for the ending of feudalism in much of Europe, and it meant that ordinary people could now afford the luxuries they'd so wanted. The working young who benefited the most could spend their wealth on things like fashion, which began to stimulate the textile industry of Europe. Records show that soon after the Black Death, fabrics being imported from Alexandria declined sharply as Europe began to export textiles. With the rise of the Ottoman Empire in Asia Minor and little support from European powers, Constantinople fell in 1453. And so, one European in particular fretted about how Europe was now going to get a reliable supply of spices, metals and gems that the European peoples had now gotten used to. Christopher Colomb was based in Lisbon, which was hardly the ideal place to get involved in the trade of the Mediterranean. While Paolo Toscanali had argued that Asia could be reached by going across the Atlantic and towards Asia from the other side. 
This was seen as reckless and expensive, but eventually getting funding from the Spanish monarch, Colon drew up a crew of sailors who knew Hebrew and Arabic, while writing a letter to the great Khan asking him to come to the aid of Jerusalem. Christopher Colon, in his anglicised name of Christopher Columbus, set sail from Spain on the 3rd of August 1492 and of course found the Americas. Later, Vasco da Gama went around the other way and rounded the southern tip of Africa. Europe was no longer the end of the Silk Road. It was now the centre of the world. Even before the discovery of the Americas, the Europeans had discovered Madeira, Canaries and the Azores. Madeira was already producing three million pounds of sugar per year by 1492. By this time, the African slave trade had already begun as Europeans began to explore the west coast of Africa as the need for labour to work these new colonies' plantations began to rise. Meanwhile, what the Europeans found in America was untold resources like pearls, gold and silver. Stories have come back to us of the natives selling these pearls for ordinary objects like bells. Such was the quantity of these types of precious jewels in the Americas. The result was fabulous wealth for Spain and Portugal, which led to increasing wealth for all of Western and Central Europe. Europe could now import as much as it wanted from the Silk Road, and invest in its own economies. The increased wealth pouring into Europe led to a rebirth of European culture, learning and civilization. We call it the Renaissance. The amount of gold and silver stolen and traded from the Native Americans and pouring into Iberia was astonishing, with witnesses describing it being stored like wheat in warehouses. The other event around this time was Vasco da Gama's speculative expedition to found another route to Asia. As da Gama reached the south of Africa and rounded the very southern tip, the Cape of Good Hope, his crew were downbeat, but they soon found a pilot who was willing to help deal with the monsoon winds, and soon they reached India. In The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith remarked that, quote, the discovery of America and that passage to the East Indies by the Cape of Good Hope are the greatest and most important events recorded in the history of mankind. De Gama returned to Portugal to a rapturous reception and laden with spices. It was a great propaganda victory for Portugal. Over the next 20 years, the two nations on the Iberian Peninsula divided up the New World and much of the old. The new Portuguese trading missions were violent and disruptive, but with the newfound wealth from the Americas, Europe could suddenly pay top dollar for all the luxury products they wanted. The Portuguese built up its own spice road from Lisbon to Mozambique to India and the Malacca Straits. However, corruption was endemic in Portugal, and it wasn't long before the Ottomans were competing with the Portuguese for this trade. All this increase in trade led to a golden age, not just for Iberia, but also for the Ottomans under Suleiman the Magnificent. 
We've noted before in this episode how the Silk Road made those who were at its periphery jealous, and how it pushed them into trying to get into some of the action. And so cometh England. Especially after the Protestant Reformation, located mostly in Northern Europe, a great divide began to be seen with regards to a North and Southern European divide. It was, in effect, a Catholic-Protestant one. Feeling threatened by the Catholic powers made England invest in its navy, and huge dockyards were built, while Matthew Baker designed and built a new generation of ships that meant English ships weighing 100 tons or more tripled in the two decades after 1560. The defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588 and the capture in 1592 of the Madre de Duas just off the Azores, as it came back from the East Indies with all manner of goods, showed England the value of this trade. The stock of the Madre de Duas, one single ship, was valued at half the annual worth of England's entire imports. Meanwhile, the newly independent Dutch fully embraced trade, and threw themselves into trade with anybody who would also trade with them. While Spain was happy to steal the resources of its colonies, the Dutch set up the East India Company and the West Indies Company to facilitate trade. As this trading started to pour into the Low Countries, they didn't rest on their laurels like the Southern Europeans had done, but invested in universities and provided space for artisans, while there were also huge engineering projects to reclaim land from the sea. This all led to a Dutch Golden Age. Scholars have estimated that in the 17th century, the Dutch produced three million paintings, and some of them would be the most famous of all European art. The rapid competition for control of the Silk Road led inevitably to military competition. In 1500, there were 500 polities in Europe. In 1900, there were merely 50. Like in business, the strong devours the weak. European proclivity for war led to developments in warfare, like military technology, which in turn would be used to dominate trade. Even scientists, like Galileo and Newton, had numerous works on the use and the trajectory of projectiles to better enable the use of artillery. The riches in the north led to urbanisation and the development of banking, which started to leave the south behind by 1600. By this point in history, the Silk Road started to collapse. Empire hit much of the world following European domination of trade and technology. The old-style trade through the Silk Road was beginning to die. Much of the trade was now between the old and the new worlds across the Atlantic. Such was the prosperity in Europe that for many years the first rung of the Silk Road began to be neglected and ignored. European artisans learnt the secrets behind Chinese silk and porcelain, effectively ending the Silk Road. Of course trade didn't end. The discovery of oil in much of the Middle East continued trade between East and West. But this wasn't down the Silk Road, it was merely trade. The invention of the Silk Road is a deliberate trade of goods down a well-trodden path, 
not merely normal trade. The idea and the conception of the Silk Road did not die with the Age of Empire, however. In recent years, the Silk Road is coming back. With the resurgence of the East in what has been labelled the Asian century, China under President Xi has pledged a new economic and foreign policy called the Belt and Road Initiative. Nearly $1 trillion has been pledged for infrastructure investments in around 1,000 projects. Following the old model of the Silk Road, China has pledged to help a variety of sea and land transport projects. Train lines, highways, deep water ports and airports that will link much of the old Silk Road back together. Of course, this is part of the great game with America and Europe and China wanting to claim back its place in the world economic order. So where has the modern Silk Road come from? I think people of my generation now think of Southeast Asia as remarkably prosperous. We see the economic and cultural powerhouse of Japan with its cars, cameras, Pokemon and anime as a rich place. And we see Taiwan as much of the same. South Korea with Samsung and boy bands is a mini Japan. While in any English university city, you will see hundreds of rich Chinese students with their nice student accommodations, iPhones and designer clothes. Meanwhile, one only has to look at many of the Arab countries and their riches and to look at a photo of their skyline to see the wealth. We think of Asia as an enormously prosperous place, but this is a modern phenomenon. In 1960, South Korea was one of the poorest places in the world, with no natural resources and an uncompromising location the very east of Asia. Now it is an economic powerhouse, which has led some to call it the most successful country in the world. The rich Arab countries have expanded from just oil wells to the location of multinational corporations and travel and tourism hubs. Asia's rise since the 1980s has been astonishing, with more than 800 million lifted out of poverty in China alone since 1980. But in a reversal of the old Silk Road, newly wealthy Asians are now buying European luxury goods. In 1990, the Chinese spent $500 million abroad. Today, it is $250 billion. And only 5% of Chinese have passports. Imagine when 50% of the population can travel. Western companies are racing to get into Asia. Prada opened seven stores in one mid-sized Chinese city, Xi'an, while Starbucks is opening a new shop every 15 hours in China. What we are living through, the start of the Asian century, is the closest we are likely to get to experiencing what it must have been like to live through the discovery of the Americas and the Columbian Exchange. The rise of the East is having huge implications in the West, increasing the prosperity of the East and the subsequent feeling of a loss of status in the West, which has resulted in things like Trump and his trade wars, Brexit and European disunity in the face of Asian cooperation as organisations like the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Eurasian Economic Union and the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership 
or threatening Western organisations. Even in the periphery of the old Silk Road, like Mongolia, Turkmenistan and Uzbekistan, their newfound natural resources and investment from China has greatly boosted their economic well-being. With Central Asia being economically underdeveloped with poor infrastructure, it has been a priority for the great powers to build up places like Uzbekistan. Why? Well, there is a clear attempt to begin a new era of the Silk Road. New train lines have been built to cross Central Asia, like the Baku-Tbilisi cars track opened in October 2017. While new freight lines have been built to upgrade freight rail lines to the European continent, the Central Asian countries are ploughing funds to build infrastructure projects like this. All of this is having an impact, with freight transport up 55% in 2017. Ashraf Ghani, President of Afghanistan, said that this is the result of South Asia being connected with Central Asia after more than a century of division. Wanting to connect South to Central Asia and then being able to go to Europe or China is of no surprise. There is a vast amount of resources in Central Asia. A US geological survey suggested that Afghanistan could hold 60 million metric tons of copper, 2,200 million tons of iron, 32,000 tons of mercury, as well as newly important materials of rare earth minerals like lithium and cesium. But the new Silk Road is not just about Central Asia. It is about trying to connect Central Asia to South and Southeast Asia, the Middle East, Turkey, Eastern Europe, as well as Africa and the Caribbean. That is approximately 4.4 billion people, or 63% of the world's population. Chinese President Xi said in May 2017 that, quote, exchange will replace estrangement and coexistence will replace a sense of superiority, close quotes. It could be of no doubt that even in the past few years, China has played a huge role in developing much of the world that has been neglected economically. Pakistan, for example, often seen as too backward, tribal and anti-Western for much US economic involvement, has seen the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which has built deep water ports, major investments in roads, energy plants, and seen the value of current investment at $60 billion, with some saying that $100 billion will be invested in the country by 2030. The Belt and Road Initiative is all about China's long-term planning. Pipelines that enable gas and oil to be pumped from Central Asia and Russia to China and increase the ability to feed China's population. Parag Khanna likened the Belt and Road Initiative to the diplomatic event of the 21st century, an event comparable to the founding of the United Nations, World Bank and the Marshall Plan all rolled into one. China's shift from manufacturing to services over the last three decades, which the IMF called a high-speed to high-quality growth, has resulted in a need to do something with all the excess steel, cement and metal China's manufacturing bases still produce. Many in Asia are hungry for upgraded infrastructure. 
China can now supply both the materials and the finance. This is a huge opportunity, with the Asian Development Bank suggesting that Asia and the Pacific will need $22.6 billion through 2030 for infrastructure developments to maintain current growth. If the old Silk Road network is upgraded to enable transportation and then growth, there could be an even stronger explosion in economic growth than over the last 10 years. As Asia starts to trade ever more feverishly with each other, there will be security concerns, just like the previous Silk Road. The new Silk Road will create conflict, just like it did back in the day. The new hotspot will not be in Mesopotamia, but the South China Sea, where 40% of China's trade, a third of India's, a quarter of Brazil's, and 10% of the UK's, Italy's, and Germany's all passes through. As Peter Frankopan says, quote, this is not a crossroads of the global economy, it is the global economy, close quotes. And China has been very aggressive in claiming its stake to the South China Sea. It goes without saying that China's rise, both in its near abroad and further afield, has caused worry in the West, Japan and India. The rise has seen China hold power over large debts of many other countries and important strategic positions around the world, in much the same way as Britain did at the height of its empire. US Defence Secretary James Mattis said of China, quote, The Ming Dynasty seems to be their model, albeit in a more muscular manner, demanding other nations become tribute states, kowtowing to Beijing, espousing one belt, one road. When this diverse world has seen many belts and roads, and attempting to replicate the international stage with the authoritarian domestic model." We focused a lot on the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, because it is the most lavish, most costly, and frankly the most interesting development over all the other projects in Asia with regards to new economic developments based on the Silk Road. But there are others. The Saudi Arabia Vision 2030 Plan the Eurasian Economic Union of Russia, the Bright Road Initiative of Kazakhstan, the Two Corridors, One Economic Circle of Vietnam, the Middle Corridor Initiative of Turkey, the Development Road of Mongolia, and further ones by Laos, Cambodia and Myanmar, not to mention all the internal development plans by India. Compare all this economic cooperation and plans by Asian countries compared to the internal wranglings and problems beset by Western powers and lack of infrastructure spending, and you really start to get a picture of where the future of the planet is. It is said of the Beatles that they pulled off one of the great con jobs in history. All they did was repackage American rock and roll, add some Northern English witty banter, and sell it back to the Americans who lapped it up. Because the Americans had forgotten, they invented rock and roll. Europe, with its ancient culture and heritage, continues to draw Asian investment. However, Asia seems inimically attracted to Europe and the West with its quote-unquote ancient culture. Sport, for example, is shifting from a European pastime to a world pastime and increasingly influenced by Asia, as English and top European sides are being bought up. Meanwhile, 
all brands like Harrods and all manner of well-known European luxury products are being bought for similar reasons. The business opportunity is perhaps part of it, but also the prestige of European brands. The irony of course being that most of these brands and ancient culture that attracts Asian investments is new by Chinese standards with its 5,000 years of history. The nouveau riche is attractive not merely to brands, but the quality production and craftsmanship of modern European products. Effectively, the Silk Road is being reversed from 2,000 years ago. Today, European silk brings all the boys to the yard, because our silk is better than yours. All roads used to lead to Rome, now they lead to Beijing. The original Silk Roads is just an idea, a patchwork of ideas and trade routes. Nobody knew the whole path from Rome to Beijing, but one step to another and trading networks was enough to get products across the world. Many, many little inventions and creations of trading routes through countless polities and territories around the world led it to be a little smaller and meant the Silk Road could push humanity a little ahead of its time. The idea of the Silk Road has been reinvented, perhaps as part of a pan-Asian attempt at inventive tradition, to make it seem like Asia is one together, peaceful and prosperous. Of course, Asia is too diverse to be one. The idea of Asia is a European invention. While there may be something such as a European, there isn't quite the same thing as being an Asian. Nevertheless, the Silk Road is coming back into fashion. The idea and the knowledge of how important it was back in the day is fueling massive infrastructure and economic integration into Asia, something that would not have happened without the idea of the Silk Road. So for binding Eurasia together and being the conduit from where Europe and Asia collided, met and transmuted ideas, it is listed at number 73 on my list of the greatest inventions of all time.